Welcome to the Second in Command podcast, produced by the COO Alliance and brought to you by its founder, Cameron Harold. In the Second in Command podcast, we talk to top COOs who share the insights, strategies, and tactics that made them the chief behind the chief. And now, here's your host, Cameron Harold. Richard Uturtu III was originally a film school grad who left film freelancing to join a small media company as an editor. During his time there, he went from editor to manager to training director to sales director, and the company itself grew from a small shop to a 35-plus employee, $2.2 million in revenue business that was eventually acquired. This quick growth path gave him some amazing experience in multiple disciplines, such as management, sales, marketing, and above all, operations. Wanting to expand his horizons, Richard made the switch to an agency world and hasn't looked back since. After managing sales at multiple agencies, he finally found his true calling at Client Boost. Since joining Client Boost, he's used the entirety of his experience to work with the leadership team and their CEO, Jonathan Dane, to achieve some outrageous growth. Growth like doubling in size every year and showing no signs of slowing down. While a rapid growth agency is a lot of fun, it can also be chaotic. To handle their growth curve, he's been the main integrator of their operating system that Client Boost now runs on. They've gotten so big that now Richard stepped out of his sales roles entirely to focus specifically on their internal processes and operations. So Richard, welcome to the Second in Command podcast. Thanks for having me. Tell us um, just briefly, what, what is Client Boost? What do, you, what do you guys do? What's your kind of core product services? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so uh, Client Boost is a digital marketing agency, which I think can mean a lot of different things based on the agency that you're talking about. But what really I think sort of our, our claim to fame is that we, uh, we really focused on bottom of the funnel conversion metrics. We very much so consider ourselves a performance agency. So the levers that we primarily pulled on that were pay-per-click advertising and then conversion rate optimization by using landing pages, ads, et cetera, et cetera. That formula of being able to control the paid traffic along with the landing page is really what propelled our client success and therefore our success. Um, but over time, we've expanded into more conversion and traffic-focused services like email and SEO and expanding our creative capabilities. But that's a bit of where we got started and where we're going. That's interesting. You, you get so many people these days that are all top of funnel, and it kind of gets a little agonizing hearing about more leads, more leads, more leads. It's often we don't need any more leads. We just need to close the leads we've got mm-hmm. and, yeah. and, and optimizing the spend. So what kind of clients do you work with? Uh, we really actually work with a, a pretty large variety. We're, we're a bit special as an agency like that. Uh, only about 9 or 10% of our clients or so make about 20% of our revenue. We've really built our, our business on, on SMB. Um, so we, uh, we've worked for uh, large companies like a, like, a, like a Bloomberg and Airbnb, but we also have several clients you've probably never heard of, <laughs> you know, uh, all small companies uh, that have different types of advertising needs. Uh, I would say where we've really excelled a lot is with uh, working with SaaS businesses. So we find that by controlling landing pages, lead gen, those kinds of things, we've been able to drive great value for B2B businesses. And is that because SaaS businesses understand the cost per acquisition and lifetime value of a customer that they're prepared to spend on this? Or are they more savvy in the marketing space than the traditional SMB businesses are? I think operating in that digital world, we just have a great understanding of how to operate these different platforms. Um, and because we are more bottom of funnel and looking into plugging into a client CRM and understanding, you know, forget the cost per lead or even an MQL, what are we talking about for a cost per acquired customer? And I think SaaS businesses really tend to know their numbers and we operate in a, you know, compatible fashion. And so we've uh, been, a, it's been a great leverage point for us to be able to demonstrate our value and, and keep earning our, our pay. 
It's interesting. There's almost, I think, one of the best kept secrets in marketing. I guess I'll kind of explode it right now when we're talking. But I was talking to the client the other day and I said, what's your cost per, per acquisition of a client? He goes, well, we're trying to get it as low as possible. And I said, no, that's backwards. Like, I think you actually, as long as you understand your cash conversion cycle and the lifetime value of a customer, you should be willing to pay close to your gross margin to get the, the growth trajectory going and then get all the spinoff revenue. But he was, he was kind of operating in the exact opposite mindset. When we finished the call, he realized he could be spending $600 to acquire a client and he was trying to get it below 60. Mm. And all of a sudden he's like, oh my gosh, it just opened up an entire new world. It doesn't mean to be wasteful, but how do you work with companies around understanding those numbers or do they already understand them when they come to you? <laughs> you know, I'll lean a little bit on my, on my sales experience here. Uh, when I was doing sales in, in the digital marketing world, I found that a surprising amount of businesses didn't really have those numbers, you know, at their fingertips. They might, they might be able to get access to them. Uh, I think part of how client boost has been successful is we try to, we actually don't try Like I would not, even though I'm a very metrics heavy kind of person, I would not say that our sales process is built around like, you know, every single sale needs to have a spreadsheet accompanying it. We really just focus on one thing. How do we make you more money? Right. So that's kind of our goal focus or, you know, organization where we're talking about where are you at and where do you want to go in order to hit your financial goals. Um, and then part of that will be working with an account manager to back out that math so they can they can understand what they what they're what they're capable of doing. And so that's mm. where we go a little beyond. That's interesting. And then do you work with multiple different platforms? You talked about, you know, optimizing landing pages. Do you work with um with unbounce, do you work with lead pages? Who do you who click funnels? Who do you guys focus yeah, on? Yeah, uh, we we primarily built our business on unbounce when it comes to CRO, um, but we have experimented with other platforms. We uh, I would say we definitely operate as sort of a startup. We're always willing to try different things. Um, so we've operated on uh, lead pages. We've operated on Optimizely. Uh, we actually have started to heavily utilize like Google Optimize for doing like on site. We definitely don't go out there and say we're a web dev agency. Um, but we're always looking for ways we can increase conversions, whether that's on an unbound site or on the client website. Interesting. Yeah, I like that. Oh, and you, so you do the, the client website as well? As far as Google Optimize goes, yeah. That's smart. So um, I'll, I'll wave to the guys at Unbounce because I can see their offices from where I'm sitting. Behind, behind <laughs> yeah, me. said hi. Yeah, the, uh, their, their former COO is one of our founding members of the COO Alliance as well, Sasha. I don't know if you ever encountered Sasha, but... Um, okay. So then, and then last question on this, and then we'll get into kind of just you and your role in, in growing businesses, but how do you charge? How do you, how do you kind of go in and work with companies? Uh, that's a great question. Um, for the most part, how we've operated as a business has been, um, we put up a, a retainer amount that, you know, includes our services. And then we basically would set goals and say, Hey, if we can achieve these goals or even maybe these service expansions and everything like that, how would our retainer change? And so we don't do any kind of hourly billing. We're not granulated. You don't see a, you know, a services list that's really long from us. It's really about you're getting access to a team with this retainer and these are the goals we're going after. Um, we do have some cases where we do like a percent of spend if it mandates it. We do have some where we do like a, a, even like a per performance kind of thing, like a per lead kind of sharing cost thing. It really depends on the client and their needs um, and just making sure that their financial goals align with our financial goals. Interesting. Now, do you partner with any other firms? Like I've got a, a client who's a member of the CEO Alliance that does um, SEO called Hennessy Digital mm -hmm. and they're, they're just in the SEO space. Do you ever partner with firms like that at all? Yeah, over time, we definitely have, uh, you know, Jonathan is definitely one to speak more to like our strategic partnerships, but absolutely, um, especially, you know, in our early days, we didn't offer SEO, we offer it internally now. Okay. But in the past, we actually worked with uh, other strategic partners and even would, uh, you know, bring those people in, into the fold as client boost employees in order to be able to expand in those capabilities. But 
digital marketing is a big world and there's lots of market share out there for everyone. So we just ultimately are about, Hey, how do we, how do we best service that client? If client boost can do it great. If not, we like to have that network of people that we can reach out to. Interesting. And then how many employees do you guys have now? <laughs> we're, we're hiring so fast in this thing. Sometimes I have a hard time keeping track. So like, <laughs> you know, the answer changes about every three or four days. Um, so I know we're North of 60, maybe 62, 63. Awesome. Yeah. The company starts to change a little bit when you go from like the 30 to the hundred mark. So you're in the middle of that big transition mm -hmm. right now. So last question, I'm going to go back again to the, the core business. How do you guys keep customers? You're kind of like a franchisor, you know, as you train the franchisee at the very beginning, they get all their value. And then, you know, for the next five years, you're like, you can't really do much. You already front loaded and trained them all. So they get kind of frustrated paying fees after you do all your work with all this optimization and, and, how do you keep your customers at that point without churn? How do you, like when you've done a lot of the heavy lifting, does the ROI for them change or how do you keep them engaged and working with you? Yeah, you know, that's something I, uh, I, I hear a lot of and it's a, it's a very, and I, I remember running up against in sales, there's sort of this perception out there and, and specifically with pay-per-click marketing that you come in, you, you optimize the heck out of it and then it's on cruise control and you don't right. need to change anything. It's, it's but, optimized, right? Yeah, but the, the funny thing about that is that digital marketing, here's here's a little fact about me. I actually started as an account manager at, at Client Boost and really deep in the, in the technical weeds. Um, I don't really, like, to be honest, like, if you start asking me a lot of technical questions about PPC, I'm probably not going to be able to keep up because the platforms and the markets change all the time. So there is, like, the way I look at it is this way, is that, yes, there, you do generally see a big improvement in the first, you know, three, six months because we're, we're cleaning out a lot of the, you know, the old habits, we're implementing a lot of our best practices. But then the question becomes, like, how much does it take to maintain? Because it's not a set it and forget it sort of thing. Yep. And so when you hire an agency, you're hiring a group of, I mean, you, you know, may get an assigned team, but that assigned team is also working with several directors and VPs and strategists whose job is to learn these platforms and their adjustments and changes because they change constantly. Um, and so having a team that you don't have to worry about that, they're going to either maintain or improve your results. That's how we earn our key. Okay. Interesting. And then are you, do, you, do you keep going back to the clients to show them the results every month? Like do you keep kind of, yeah. Yeah, we have, we have anything, some of our, some of our bigger clients, we have weekly conversations getting into the, like, in, in some cases, if we're working with like a, a VP of marketing or even like a director of, of lead gen or demand gen, uh, we're having weekly to bi-weekly calls with them to basically talk about the tactics and we're really embedded in their marketing team and we're helping to facilitate that stuff. Um, for some of our, you know, clients where we're maybe reporting up to a CMO or CEO, we just have like a monthly meeting to go over the metrics we're driving. Um, and we even have a uh, workflow processes that make it to where calls aren't even necessary sometimes. And I can, I can t expand more on that topic as well. That's interesting. Um, well, yeah, why don't you dive into that? Yeah. So one of the things we actually adopted because, um, when we were doing the different kind of client work, usually what we relied heavily on was phone calls. We used to do weekly calls with almost all of our clients to be like, Hey, I was in the accounts and I wrote down my notes and I sent you an email and let's call and talk about the email, et cetera, et cetera. So one of the big things that we worked on over the past year or so has basically been implementing a workflow process where we actually bring our clients into our project management tool. So they actually have complete visibility into our processes and what we're doing. Um, we use a project management tool called Asana that I'm a, I'm a huge fan of. And uh, this workflow process, it, it, has a, it has a brand name now. I used to call it the idea framework, which was my incredibly nerdy, not very useful <laughs> term, but now we call it the boost flow. 
Um, and so it's essentially a, a standardized methodology that all of our account managers followed in order to ideate, execute, uh, analyze, and then report results of the different kinds of things that they're doing. And we put our clients directly into Asana so they can follow along with that. So they don't ever really need to call the AM and say, what's going on? They can just log into a platform. They can see the different tests that are running, their status on them, those kinds of things. And so it actually has improved our communication and client sentiment. And uh, the, the, you know, what your audience might appreciate is a bunch of COOs is that we're harvesting all of that data on the back end. So also management has a huge amount of visibility into what our account managers are doing in the accounts on literally a daily basis. Interesting. Um, do you get some insights in terms of how often your clients are going into Asana? Like, do you get any kind of reports or intel as to how engaged your clients are? That's actually a great idea of a metric to track. Uh, we do have that data. I can't say that we're really utilizing it from a management perspective. But the thing I will say that we do is we measure client sentiment a lot. Um, so we are doing things like NPS tracking, CSAT tracking, trying to figure out like what the clients are. And so we do have like, you know, data that shows that, you know, clients are enjoying this, they approve of the method of communication and they feel like they've got hands on the account. It'd be interesting, like to, st I'll give you an analogy. It'd be like, let's say the client buys a gym membership. Like, how are you enjoying your gym membership? Oh, it's like an eight out of 10. Great. So everybody's like, we're at kind of like a zero net promoter score or whatever, 50% mm -hmm. net promoter score. But then you're like, you don't come to the fucking gym. Like ever like you like of course you're giving it an eight out of ten like you're never here you came once in the last six months i just yeah. went and played tennis at our tennis club a couple nights ago with my son and i was realized we hadn't played tennis together in two years i'm like <laughs> of course i'm not getting the benefit out of the membership so uh and it would be interesting for the club to be pinging me going hey dude you're paying fees but you're not you're not around very much yeah um, I, I think one once solution we had that kind of that because there was sort of this question of we have some clients that we can tell them like hey log into this you know digital platform they're like especially if you're like a CEO or something like, I don't have time to get in here and try to figure out a new platform and stuff like that. So one of the beauties of it is that um, we can assign different kinds of things that they can track and get notified about. So we can just ping their email inbox with our activity in Asana. So they never have to go anywhere. Right. Perfect. And sometimes there's a little bit of a training curve with clients where they might be like, you know, trying to call the right things, be like, yeah, just, put it directly in Asana and easy, you know? So we have a little bit of an onboarding process that we do with clients that we're getting better and better at. That's great. So you said you've gone through a lot of growth and you've been there for about five years now, four and a half years. How, um, what was the number of employees when you started there? 13, I was employee number 13. Okay, so you've gone from, from the 10, I always say that the numbers go from the ones and threes. When you go from you know 10 employees to 30 and from 30 to 100 and 100 to 300, um, how has the company changed in that in that time period, like from the, the 13 to 60? <laughs> Massively. Um, you know, I think uh, if I can just like, I guess be whimsical and nostalgic for a second. Yeah. Um, you know, employee number 13, I remember uh, when I first applied to Client Boost, I thought they were a much bigger agency. The way that the the branding was set up and, and the, 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 the leadership of the thought, like the thought leadership that was coming out of it, uh, I just assumed it was like an 80 person agency operating out of L.A. And when I applied, it, you know, then I suddenly realized, I'm like, my goodness, it's a it's a 13 person company, and we were in a, a little office above a Starbucks, you know, <laughs> and so it definitely had very much so that kind of startup environment sort of thing. I remember Jonathan in my interview wearing shorts. He's very he's very casual, you know, and Nerf guns, you know, around the office. But it 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 felt like a like a true startup, you know, and um, that it was very informal. But the way we manage things is just a bunch of smart people in a room 
uh, and we were sitting shoulder to shoulder and we could just figure things out. And sometimes like it was literally shoulder to shoulder cause we couldn't figure out where to put more desks cause we were, we were growing so much. Um, but, uh, you know, of all that to now where we have systems and processes and obviously, you know, COVID has made it to where we're all, you know, pretty much operating virtually. But, um, you know, just prior to lockdown, we had our own building with multiple stories, multiple teams, systems, processes, and we've really grown up into into more of a professional company, but managed to still maintain some of that fun stuff. Jonathan still wears shorts in the office. That's great. <laughs> well, how about, how about the leadership team? How have you had to evolve as a leadership team in terms of the day-to-day? Yeah. So at the beginning, the way I used to think about it was uh, Jonathan basically oversaw everything. Um, so it was a bit siloed um, where, you know, sort of Jonathan would have a meeting with the, the one or two marketing people he'd had. And then he would have a meeting with our director of PPC at time to go over the operations. Then he would have a meeting with me to talk about sales. But there wasn't really a lot of cross communication. Um, so eventually Jonathan decided, hey, you know, I've got to have, you know, kind of lieutenants for this sort of stuff. So I'm going to be uh, putting Richard onto the leadership team. Uh, and we had another person for over our design team. And so it was a pretty, just, it was a group of three to start out with. Um, I was the one that facilitated uh, our kind of leadership summits and kind of more professional beating of the drum communication patterns, just because I had some of that business experience. Um, and so uh, a lot of times the thing I say is that, you know, Jonathan got the company to $2 million on pure hustle. You know, yeah. like the guy is just like unstoppable when he has an idea in his head. Um, but what took for us to get to kind of this next step of about 30 employees or so really required him to start leaning on other people and learning from other people. Um, so that's kind of where the first leadership teams kind of appeared. Um, in order to make that next jump, I'd say from about 30 to 50 or so, we actually introduced more of a middle management layer and a lot more kind of processes and systems to, to facilitate that communication. Now, when you've got things like project management tools, structured cadences of meetings and reporting set up everywhere, uh, it's, it's definitely very different than the, hey, let me just grab the person to my right or to my left. Right. Let's run with it. So um, in terms of, of building out that first leadership team, were they all internal hires and promotions? Were there any external hires? Uh, I mean, <laughs> depends on how you define it. Um, in my case, I actually joined up with the company. So funny thing is I actually started as an account manager because I didn't, uh, I had been doing sales and I said, you know what, I'm not sure if sales is for me and I really want to get into the operations path. So I'm going to be an account manager. Um, and Jonathan, in my first interview was just like, Hey, why don't you come do sales? Um, and I was like, thanks, but I, I really want to go down this operations path. I've done the sales thing. And after two weeks, he was like, Hey, you sure you don't want to come do sales for, for client boost? And I was like, no, I'm really, I, I, I'm pretty happy doing this. And after two months, he's like, I'll pay you more money. I'll put you on the leadership team. Please come do sales. <laughs> you know? So I had only been there for about two months before I was put onto the leadership team. You know, right. and originally I would, had planned to be an account manager. Um, every single person after that, we pretty much, we've definitely hired kind of heavy hitters for our, for our operations team, but no one on leadership team has come from the outside. Okay. So you're not at that stage yet. That's an interesting, mm -hmm. it's an interesting um, problem to have to yeah. deal with when you're hiring that first yeah. external hire. Well, actually, I do have one quick story on that. Uh, <laughs> uh, we actually have tried to hire once for a, for a leadership position from outside. Unfortunately, it didn't go well. Uh, we, we tried to hire uh, for a high level sales position and, uh, and it didn't work out. So, you know, I think we're still learning how to how to do that. Yeah, it's a tough hurdle, but you get there. Mm -hmm. So then talk about what it was like in terms of promoting some of the internal people into leadership team and, and you're leaving some of their friends behind. You know, how do you how do you deal with that internally, that communication, keeping people feeling safe and feeling loved when they're, you know, their buddy just <laughs> became their boss, right? 
Yeah, that's wow. That's that's a deep question. Um, it happens at different levels of the organization, and it, and it happens all the time. I mean, I was literally on conversations this morning talking about some some entry level people that are getting promoted kind of into the next level, and how will their peers that started at the same time feel about it? Um, I think Client Boost uh, of all the places I've worked, Client Boost cares tremendously about their employees and and making sure to keep them motivated and feel part of it. That being said. We've definitely fostered an environment of, of kind of team thinking. It's, it's high competitive for sure. We hire people specifically that are competitive and want to be the best, but there's such a, we call it family. Sometimes we jokingly call it a cult, but you know, it can sometimes blur that line a little bit where yeah. everyone's pretty, pretty uh, supportive of the, of the success. Um, moving people up, you know, uh, Kim, who's our, our VP of client services, she, uh, she was originally one of our top account managers and she was, you know, one of the people down there in the trenches with everyone. So when she was promoted in that pathway, I think everyone was really happy for her. Um, but it definitely becomes one of those things when you are put into a leadership position and then asked to manage people that were your peers previously, it can create sort of an uncomfortable dynamic, you know? Um, but I think through, uh, through empathy, through excellent leadership and management skills, you manage to smooth that out. Okay. And, and you just look to support those, those peers and help them achieve the same ranks you have. Sounds like you also operate a little bit with a bit of a meritocracy where people were proud of her because she was getting good results. So they, she was kind of the logical, they got it, right? They understood it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. In, it, in, it's a little bit different when it's, you know, new services or new routes that were going out and there's different kind of decision making that goes into it. Um, but for the most part, like we, we do like anonymous surveys for our employees, uh, monthly and quarterly about specific directors and everything. So we've got pretty good taps on how people feel about stuff. And when someone's really upset, we do our best to get in there and, and solve those issues and keep us as, you know, one big happy family slash cult. <laughs> got it. Okay. Yeah. It makes sense. It makes sense why it's working. So you've mentioned cult a couple of times. I've talked a lot about, <laughs> about building a world-class culture that build, <laughs> culture. That's a better word. <laughs> well, no, but cult is a derivative of culture, right? Cult oh. or culture is a derivative of the word cult. So mm -hmm. um, you think about the, about building a cult and, and building that culture to build an amazing company, it has to be a little bit more than a business, a little bit less than a religion. And <laughs> I don't know if you've seen the the show about the movie The Vow or the the um, about this cult um, where the guy who is leading it is actually going to prison. But I've been talking to two of the head people over the last week, one who I've known for years and one who is based here in Vancouver. And in speaking to them both about it, you realize the indoctrination and the passion and it was very, very hard. They're actually in every series, every show of the cult. They're They're in this thing. And it's it's crazy kind of watching to realize like they were so indoctrinated and so excited and so passionate. They, they couldn't see, they couldn't see the problems. Mm. So I think there's a lot to be, to be said for understanding how to build a cult inside of a company mm -hmm. to keep people excited and indoctrinated and staying with us for five years instead of leaving after a year. So what do you think you've done that, that, um, well, first off, tell us what your culture is like. And then secondly, what do you think you've done to stir that Kool-Aid to, to make that culture stronger? Well, uh, number one, like most good cults, we've got a charismatic leader. <laughs> you know, uh, no, realistically, like Jonathan is, you, you probably get a lot of like the CEO, uh, CEO kind of balance. And I'm, I'm, I'm very different than Jonathan, but at the same time, I really admire what he's been able to do in regards to our culture and everything. Um, he's managed to, you know, kind of balance this sort of like fun, crazy, you know, like, you know, go getter kind of mentality while still being financially successful, you know? Yeah. Um, and so 
and I mentioned earlier that like we hire people for high competitive drive. So um, our, we actually, it, it took us a little while to get there. We didn't realize we were doing it, but we finally took a step back and we, we came up with our core values, uh, which our core values are uh, push yourself, be accountable, be resilient, be transparent, and also focus on you. And so like focus on your, on, on yourself and your, and your clients. So you put those together, that's party. <laughs> so that, that kind of, we literally have in our office, a gigantic, like, you know, party written out, that kind of thing. That's the only thing I don't like about core values is when you build them into an acronym. I'm like, is yeah, it was, you know, the, you so, nailed the five core values were so good. I'm like, you crushed it, you crushed it. And then I'm like, uh, and you lost me at the acronym. Yeah, the acronym. Well, here's a funny side note. Originally it used to be, uh, we had push, fun, accountable, resilient, and transparent. Yeah, those don't was, work because they're single words. They're confusing. Yeah, they, they did, but the, the acronym then was PFART. So we're like, <laughs> we all thought it was pretty funny, you know, but then we decided to, no. we kind of we melded it into the acronym. <laughs> yeah, we, when we were building 1-800-GOT-JUNK, our, our core values ended up spelling the word PIPE, P-I-P-E. And what we didn't understand when we opened up in Quebec, we learned very quickly, but PIPE is the French word for blowjob. <laughs> so we decided to get rid of the acronym and just go with core values that we believed in. Yeah. I mean, we did believe that we did like the core value, you know, wrap up as well. But so, so how do you say, so, so you obsess about the core values. They're not just on the wall, but how do you obsess about them? How do you live them? How do you reinforce them? Yeah. Uh, it really is, uh, you know, you, you talked about the, the Kool-Aid right of it. I think the amazing thing about it now is that it's, it's sort of self-fulfilling and that like, Part of what we do is we are very selective about about hiring. We actually do a lot of personality testing to actually understand kind of the under underlining drivers to like get people that are high competitive or will fit you know into roles that make sense. Um, but then really from there, it's just you know you put enough people that have those same type of core values into the leadership team that then goes to all of their you know their support subordinates. That then when new people are come on, they can't help but you know be like this is like. And I still feel this to this day. All the people I work with are some of the smartest, most driven people I've ever worked with in my career, right? And they do it while having a ton of fun. Like it's 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 hard to describe the uh, the you know the the Kool Aid uh, effect that we have, where everyone's just like, this is the most incredible job I've ever had. There's definitely stress. We're we're a work hard, play hard kind of company. Um, there's definitely you know there's we we're not perfect by any means. But uh, one of the things we talked about in our mission was like, how do we be like the best in the world at this while having the most fun. Right. And so I think that aspect is just agency life can already be kind of a grind. So by just having that kind of fun aspect to it has really kind of helped carry it through. So give it, give me a couple examples around that. How do you do it to ensure that people are having fun and how do you, how do you um, kind of reduce the stress and the overwhelm when people are stressed? Yeah. Um, you know, COVID's thrown a bit of a wrench in this, but, but uh, pre COVID uh, you know, part of it is just a lot of the perks that we do. We do like, uh, we were doing massages, uh, meals, kind of the standard agency stuff, but also like we're pretty big on our parties. Um, so every single time we hit an MRR milestone, we do that. And the parties we did, they're crazy. We we went to Hawaii, we we, uh, we rented a yacht, you know, like, uh, and there's just also like, you feel like you're working with your friends because there's always lots of jokes going around the office and those kind of thing. Jonathan can be a bit of a, a bit of a prankster. There's always bets going on and everything. So there's, there's been kind of that, that sort of thing leading in into all that we do. 
in pandemic times is a bit harder because we're all working remotely, but we've, uh, <laughs> I've got kind of a love hate relationship with Slack, but Slack's been kind of our, our only way of kind of carrying that water that is our culture and the jokes and the humor mm-hmm. and the gifts and the memes. So it's even in just the way that we, we communicate. And, and I don't want to say that like our culture is purely about, about fun and jokes. It, it also is like a call to, to our core values, which is, yeah. which is pushing yourself holding you accountable. And so we have those tough conversations, but you know, also then on a Friday, we'll like play trivia and give away prizes and, you know, have a lot of fun. Well, and I, and I caught that on the work hard, play hard. I, I used to say that our culture at 1-800-GOT-JUNK was work hard, play hard, but results first. And it was, mm-hmm. you know, we're going to play hard, but we got to be getting the results. And and we were very much a, a life balance kind of group. Mm-hmm. I just threw in the chat for you and I, and I'll link it in the show notes, but um, there's a great tool that you could put in place for you and your team now remote. It's called workplayjam.com. And they, they actually host and facilitate uh, trivia nights and bingos and scavenger hunts and really cool. And they're in the business of running co-ed intramural sports leagues for 150,000 people. So this is their jam. And I am not a normal kind of laugh out loud kind of guy. <laughs> and I did one of these recently for all of our COO Alliance members. And one of our team who's known me for five years called me afterwards. He's like, dude, I don't know what you were smoking, but you were laughing hard for 90 <laughs> minutes. He goes, I've never seen you do that. And this is a, like, he's a personal friend. We trained for my marathon together. He was at my 50th birthday five years ago. Like he knows me really well. Mm-hmm. And I was like, God, you're right. Like I was literally laughing my ass off for 90 minutes. And, and it's a great way to just get your team to connect and have fun. So maybe check that out. Cause it, I think it blends really nicely in with your culture for sure. Mm-hmm. Definitely. So when you have to make hiring decisions based on the core values, how do you incorporate them into your hiring Core values are a hard specific judgment on new people coming in because, you know, everyone that's coming in has their different resume, that sort of thing. One of the things we lean heavy on, you know, besides we have a technical vetting process where people have to answer technical questions, we're also doing uh, video interviews that where people have to record themselves on camera so we get a sense for how they communicate, which is very important to us. Um, But a big thing for us has been implementing the DISC surveys. Um, So the personality index for the the dominant inspirational uh, steadiness and compliance. Um, And that has been like (laughs) those tests. I'm, I'm always, I'm always shocked by how accurate they are when they ask you very few questions. So we've really built a a, a model of our business around doing that as, as a check process. What's, what's Jonathan's disc profile? (laughs) Anyone that, anyone that knows disc will, will, will get, maybe get a kick out of this. His D and his I are through the roof. And he's got basically no S or C. Yeah, <laughs> so. I didn't. I didn't even know that there was a C in disc. I just kind of thought it stopped at S. I'm a 98 D and a 74 I. I'm like so far off on the D side. Yeah, it's yeah, yeah. Jonathan, I think is like a 98 or 99 D, and then like a like a 90 something I, and then like his C, I think is like a two. Right. It's like compliance. <laughs> what the hell's compliance mean? Yeah, that's, John, that's for other people. Definitely the, our our resident risk taker. I'm our resident risk calculator. I'm yeah. I'm a like a like a 60c <laughs> i used to say that i love rule i love rules because it keeps the idiots away from me um but they're not the rules aren't for me it's just to yeah, keep, for other people to keep my path clear so i can go faster right yep yep um interesting okay and then have you had to fire people based on core values yeah yeah we have um, how, do you, how do you do that and how do you have that conversation um you know our, our thing has been, we, we even hesitate to use the word fire, you know, um, the, the, the technical term a lot is managing out. Um, so we, we generally will give the benefit of the doubt to people and, and give them quite a bit of runway. But when we recognize that someone is, is not hitting benchmarks, not hitting results, 
it's a conversation, you know? Um, and what we find, we really try to get these people to do is to recognize where they're going wrong, what behaviors might be doing that, and then challenge them to fix it, challenge them to prove it, right? And show that they can, they can make this happen, right? Because we say, this is the expectation. And if you want to do it, do it. Um, and then we find with that, if we, if we keep that expectation on them to change or they have to make the decision and they can't do it, they eventually leave on their own. Well, managing them out is okay because, you know, because of results, that one's reasonably easy, but how do you manage them out because of core values? Have you done anything there at all? I think that's a trickier one. Um, people that, uh, we have very few examples of this, so I don't, I don't want to name any specific names or, or be too specific, but, um, in those cases, uh, those conversations tend to be a little less structured, you know, about like it, cause we have to still point to the behaviors that come out and point out those behaviors that they're doing that don't match in with it. Those ones, like if they are hitting results, but don't match our core values, it sometimes just catches up to them in the end, you know, whether it might be the, if it's someone that's a director, then like they may be getting negative kind of responses about them and everything. And they're aware of the problem or aware that they're not matching it. Yeah. And it can kind of follow the same, same pattern. Yeah, core values they usually know, right? Sometimes results they're they're a little bit more obtuse to it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Talk talk to me a little bit about about um, your kind of day to day. What do you focus on day to day as a leader? Yeah. So in my case, the the sort of uh, the trinity of, of client boost is myself, Jonathan, and and Kim, uh, who's our VP of client services. And client services is is both myself and Kim are our, our titles are are pretty pretty specific, but our roles are very broad. <laughs> Kim basically like, you know, a lot of these questions about disc and hiring, she is a, a, a fantastic people manager uh, and kind of working through those types of things. I'm generally seen more as the operation systems project kind of person. So um, I'm generally the one that's running our agendas for, for our different kind of departmental meetings or leadership meetings. So putting together that kind of like what are the strategic things we're focusing on in accordance with the vision that Jonathan has put together. Um, but also because I am numbers and I have a background in sales, I also sit over the sales team and also over finance. Um, so I'm the one that's basically the numbers guy and, uh, and sometimes can be a little bit of the, that sounds fun, Jonathan, but, uh, we have a, we have a PNL we have to meet, you know? So, so sometimes that can be a source of friction, but, um, that's kind of my role is, is working through different departments to and operate systems so we run more efficiently um, and hit more of our metrics. You mentioned that you've got some meetings in place and you put some of these, I forget the term you used, but you put some of the meeting rhythms in place for the organization. Mm -hmm. How do your meeting rhythms work? What's, what types of meetings do you have right now inside the organization? Yeah, so um, our, our current system, and it's gone through several evolutions, <laughs> uh, is we have a monthly kind of strategic meeting with Jonathan uh, to make sure that we're online for, for the vision and kind of the biggest things. That's a metric heavy meeting where we're going to be a little bit more like, where are we at? What did we ship? What do we need to do to, to get this right? Um, so Jonathan is the type to lay out some high level expectations. We make sure we're clear on the goal. Um, and then we're, we're off and running. We then have uh, biweekly like cross departmental meetings. A lot of times, you know, to avoid that silo effect, we'll have sales, marketing, operations, finance, and HR all in the same meeting to basically hash out any kind of cross departmental issues. Hey, sales and operations has this thing they're trying to broker and figure out. So I'm usually brokering those types of cross department meetings and then each of the department heads has their own kind of weekly you know cadence check-in what are the things we were assigned how are we working on it are we pushing towards our goals okay you mentioned the strategy but then you talked about being metrics heavy do you spend much time on strategy strategy where you're just blue skying and brainstorming and thinking a year out 
we always have lots of ideas. We, we're, we're, we have no shortage of, of ideas and good ideas. It's always a question of prioritization, which one do we want to do first? Uh, to be honest, we're not a company that generally plans a year out. We'll sometimes engage those in like a quarterly summit. We'll think about the year, five-year, 10-year plan. Um, but we're a very tactical company. So it's about what are we shipping this month? What are we shipping this quarter? You know? Yeah. There are, there are large vision aspects, but we usually don't detail those out to an extreme. And then what about your one-on-one -on -one meetings with your direct reports, your team? Do you do those and how do they mm -hmm. work? Yeah, so uh, it, it really depends on what we've gone on. What I've tried to use, I, I'm, a, I'm a big believer in like EOS models and I think we run on sort of our own adapted EOS. Um, my weekly one-on-ones with uh, overseeing finance, sales, and for a while I was overseeing HR as well. Usually we just have a project list that we're looking at together and solving problems. But I very much so kind of in a servant leadership model, I'm trying to figure out like, what are your problems? What do you need help with? Um, but they're usually just structured around specific things for that one. And then there's also just an accountability aspect to it. You said you were going to get me this this week. Is that still going to happen, et cetera, et cetera. Right. And then so... Is it is it following up or or do, when do you kind of get into the mentoring and growing them? That's a, that's a great question. Um, I actually find that my 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 one on ones that are scheduled. So there's actually two different one on ones that I have. Um, there's usually the the thirty minute of tactical business. Let's talk about it. But then also we have a monthly we call HCI BBFY. How can I be better for you? Uh, meetings. Um, those are ones that operate as more of a casual dialogue where we can basically get them to talk about like, hey, me as a manager, how am I doing, right? What can I do to, to serve you better? But also it's a time to kind of talk more about what they're looking to do. So all of my directs, um, you know, if they're struggling with something or I feel like there's some kind of teachable moment, I'm quick to pick up a phone and go on a walk and chat with them for 45 minutes to an hour. And have you ever had to have the really tough discussions with them? Um, are, they, are they pretty good at this point? Yeah, you know, <laughs> I don't have a lot of directs, so I don't want to be too specific. Um, but um, I would say I'm 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 impressed with with all the people that I've I've directly managed. When there is issues that come up, I'm the type that I don't tend to operate very personally or emotionally. I try to just you know provide as much. I'm I'm not necessarily like a sage that's been doing this for 30 years. I'm only just a couple chapters ahead in the leadership book, but I try to give them as much of the benefit of my experience as I can, you know, and coach them through the different stuff. Cool. But even I myself, like I also get coaching, you know, because I need to develop more and more as a leader. So there's definitely an environment of, of coaching and personal development that we have as a company. Where are you getting coaching? Uh, we actually use a, uh, a a company that does partly the personality assessments. Um, they're called XQ. I'll shout them out. They're good. Um, but XQ Innovation. And they um, they basically offer uh, different kind of personality assessment things you can implement in your HR processes, but they also do consulting. And so they do a lot of executive consulting. And so they've been someone that, you know, when myself, Jonathan, or Kim, when we're at a point where we're like, we're too inside the box to figure this problem out out or broker this or work through this issue. Um, they're kind of an independent third party we can reach out to. Cool. You, you mentioned EOS and traction. Are you working mm -hmm. with an implementer for that or are you self-implementing? Self-implementing to the best of my abilities. <laughs> How's that going? <laughs> it's a process. Um, yeah, we, uh, we actually, uh, like we kind of, we actually all had the, we had the entire company read what the heck is EOS, which is like the light version of traction. Um, I was one of the few people that actually read traction through the full way. I'm also, um, a big fan of the book rocket fuel by, uh, Gino, Gino Wickman and, and Mark Winters. Yep. Yeah. And so I very much so identify with kind of the integrator trait. Um, and Jonathan is very much so the visionary trait. Um, 
So I've probably borrowed a lot more heavily from that book than I have from the EOS traction, but it is built into a lot of our processes and how we operate. Um, but we definitely kind of went through the book. Here's what we like. Here's what we don't. We tried to implement it as best we can. But I think maybe maybe to get to 100 people, we may have to revisit it and, and open all those processes back up again. Well, we're going to have to get you into the COO Alliance as well because we've got the, the entire room is filled with implementers. There's no or integrators. Sorry, there's no CEOs allowed. So there's no Jonathan. <laughs> It's really funny. Like it's a also, safe place. No, seriously. Like there's no, I started the whole thing cause I used to go to all these EO and YPO events and I didn't fit in. I was like the COO and, and I realized there was no place for us to actually sit down. And you know, as an example, like if I was talking to a bunch of CEOs, they would say, yeah, we got to get all the right people on the bus and be like, yeah, good talk on recruiting. I'm like, wait, that was just a phrase. Like we didn't talk about recruiting. <laughs> and then meanwhile, with the COOs, we could spend two full days talking about recruiting and interviewing and selection and onboarding and type, mm-hmm. types of questions to ask and top grading and you know reference checks. And the CEOs, their eyes would be glazing over. But um, yeah, it's a good space to kind of get into it. Yeah. How about yourself? And you, you know, you came into the organization in sales, you've grown up in the organization. How are you working on your skills as a leader? Uh, you know, the, the thing I would actually say, um, obviously, I'm always looking to push the boundaries in terms of my ability to, to coach and manage. I've, I've looked to push my, my, my data skill sets. I, don't, I just do not have the time anymore with, the, with my current position to be able to get into the nitty gritty of stuff like I used to. So I'm trying to teach others to, to operate in the same way I do. And I'm, I'm still on the hunt for sort of a, a, a true protege that, can, that I can teach all of these skills to. Um, but you mentioned something of just like a, a skill you're looking to work on. And I've massively improved on one, but one thing that I had to work on a lot was actually empathy and leadership. Mm. Um, in my case, early in my kind of operations role, uh, there was a situation where, where Jonathan said, hey, we're going to roll out this new comp plan. I did the math and everything like that. He's like, oh, okay, great. Richard, you came up with a comp plan. Go explain it to people and, and get them to sign on to this new comp plan. I, I approached that exercise too much as a, as a math guy being like, here it is. Here's the numbers. You know, here's your comp plan. Next. <laughs> And man, like I, I, I stepped on some toes and, and I didn't, I didn't handle like, I didn't handle that conversation. I was, I was thinking too much about the numbers and the business and not enough about the people that I was talking to. Sure. Um, and so, like I said, we got a lot of taps in and, and when, uh, when the survey came out about me, I realized, oh man, like I kind of had, I knew the rumblings, but I didn't realize the statistical math picture of how bad I had messed up. <laughs> so, so, uh, part of, part of my training that I did with, uh, with XQ was actually working on empathy. And, and being a better communicator with people and, and their feelings and understanding them and listening and everything, which for me just wasn't as a very, you know, logic, like a guy that, you know, like, I guess some CEOs, like, you know, you worship guys like Spock and data, you know, <laughs> you know, you're like, logic is all you need. Well, you don't need emotions right. are illogical. Um, so I, I actually worked on improving my EQ quite a bit. Um, and so uh, my last 360 survey came out. I, I've I've smoothed over that bump, and and then there I've got a lot more people that now comment on my excellent communication skills with it. So it's something I'm always aware of, you know, that uh, that it's something I need to balance. The bump keeps coming too, because when you get to 100, then you got to hit the next level of EQ too. It's a real, <laughs> it's an art and a science. Have yeah. you ever come across a name Walter O'Brien? Do you know no, that I name? So he had the fourth highest IQ in history. Mm-hmm. Um, he hacked into the NASA computer system when he was 12 years old to steal the blueprints for the space station and got arrested. But uh, anyway, he, the TV show Scorpion is based on his life. Mm-hmm. I, I had a talk with him, I don't know, about two years ago. We, we did a call for about an hour together, just he and I, and, and um, I'd been hacked. And I, I reached out and somebody said, yeah, I talked to Walter. And I'm like, 
it's a little overkill. Uh, whatever. Um, I got hacked. I'm not NASA. <laughs> yeah. But when I was talking to him, he said that he has no, no EQ. He, mm-hmm. he actually has no emotional intelligence. He operates just like a computer. He doesn't recognize innuendo or humor and he, his brain actually doesn't track that way. So while you could learn it, he has an inability to even understand that it should exist. Like he mm-hmm. understands logically, but it doesn't really make sense because it's like, ones and zeros coming in is just data right like he he, he's a freaking human computer (laughs) so at one point we were talking and i kind of said something and i was like oh fuck i'm like it was a joke he goes i was thinking i was i was thinking it might have been a joke and i wasn't really sure i'm like god you really don't even get it that's extraordinary (laughs) Um, and i would die working with him because i'm always sarcastic right he Uh would just completely miss the sarcasm so all right, final question. If we were going to go back to the 21-year-old Richard and give, give him some advice, what advice would you give the 21-year-old you that now you know to be true? Oh, man. Um, you know, besides the obvious stuff like, you know, read more books and, uh, <laughs> and, 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 you know, find a mentor. One of the things I was thinking about is in my early 20s, um, I was making a, I made a, I made a career change. I went, originally went to film school, you know, and so then I joined up with that, that other company. Um, and so that was, that was the thing. But that other company, I, I always felt like as long as I was learning, it was good. But I really wanted, I really want to tell earlier me that it's just like, get out on the road, like try things, be more risky, you know? Um, because I, I may have stayed, like I learned a lot in, in the past positions that I have, but I may have stayed at them too long, you know? Um, and so, yeah, I guess that would be my, be my advice to my younger self is just be, be more of a risk taker. Awesome. I love it. Richard, you're Chertu, the COO for Client Boost. Thanks so much for sharing with us today on the Second Command podcast. Really appreciate your time. You've been listening to Second in Command, brought to you by COO Alliance founder Cameron Harold. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe to us on Himalaya for access to our premium content. For more best practices from industry leading COOs, visit COOalliance.com.